As we move through the book of 1 Thessalonians, and that's where we'll be this morning. If you, if you don't have a Bible and you slip your hand up, we'll make sure we get a Bible to you. Um, so we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians. We've been there for several weeks now. Some of you are like, I thought it was a short book. Why are we, <laughs> why are we still in 1 Thessalonians? We pump the brakes in chapter 5 because... Paul likes to stuff a bunch of things in the back of his letters, you know? Like he spent a long time in the beginning, and then at the end he's like, oh yeah, a bunch of stuff that's going to blow your mind, but I'm going to give you little tweets about it. Uh, And it takes a little bit of unpacking. And what he's going to address in the verses we're going to look at today, three little verses that we're going to look at today, has caused almost more controversy in the history of the church than almost anything else. Uh, The church historically has been a Trinitarian church. We believe in one God and three persons. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, the Father, we know what to do with Him. We pray to Him, our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. We pray to the Father. Jesus taught us to pray to the Father. When Jesus was in the garden and He was about to go to the cross, He prayed to the Father, right? When we think of creation, we think of the Father speaking and His Word becoming acts. And then when we look in John, we see that the Word that God spoke actually was Jesus. And we know we're a Christ-centered faith. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus came and lived the life that we weren't able to live. Jesus rose again, and Jesus is the one that conquered death. Who's going to come back in the book of Revelation and eradicate evil and restore peace in this world? Jesus. Back to the mountain of Eden, right? Of, of peace and, and, and lack of sin. Well, Jesus is going to do that. What about the Holy Spirit? See, we get real squirrely when it comes to the Holy Spirit. We don't really, we don't really know what to do with them. Partly because there's been so much confusion regarding the Holy Spirit. Maybe for some of you, when you think of the Holy Spirit, you think of the dude on TV that's knocking over with his handkerchief, we kind of back off because that's cray-cray, right? When you think of the Holy Spirit, you think of almost an it. Have you ever made that slip up and called him it? It's like he's the force. You know, that impersonal, very powerful, but that impersonal thing that allows the Jedi to do the flips and stuff, you know? But it's an it, But it's not an it, it's a he. Paul tells us things like, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You don't grieve an it. An it doesn't feel grief. A he feels grief. And if we paid more attention, we'd read Genesis 1 and see that before God speaks anything into existence, one member of the Trinity is already hovering over the waters of the deep, preparing creation to happen, the Spirit. And so we look a little more closely. We see the Holy Spirit everywhere in Scripture. We're taught that Scripture is breathed out by God. Peter tells us that the Spirit carried the writers of Scripture along. So what you have in your hands, in your laps, in your tablets, your phones, the Bible, is there because the Holy Spirit prompted prophets and apostles to write what you have there. So the Holy Spirit... He's kind of the backstage, the backstage personnel, you know? Um, 
he's in the credits of the movie, but he's, he's the credits that we don't really pay attention. We, director and main actor. Nobody knows screenwriter does or the gaff guys or, you know, the dudes with the thing that stay behind the curtain and call all the shots that don't get any props. Nobody knows their names. Holy Spirit is kind of like that. He exudes humility, but he, he is powerful. He's God. He's everywhere, and he's not quiet. And what Paul, before he closes his letter, wants to make sure this church knows, as we've talked about, he's concerned that this church survives. He planted this church, left. This church is getting hammered with persecution. And he's thinking, man, they're going to die. They're going to they're shrivel. They're gonna, they're, they're, maybe they're weak. Maybe they can't handle persecution. So he sends Timothy to go check them out. Timothy comes back and tells Paul, man, they're great. It's a great church. I mean, they're, yes, they're being afflicted. But it's an awesome church. So Paul spills like two and a half chapters of how great they are, how much he loves them, how much he wants to be with them. But they still need to grow. They still need to love more. Some of them are still kind of lazy. They need to get to work, literally. Go out and earn a check. Don't be, don't be idle. And then he closes with this word about the Holy Spirit. And every pastor I know gets a little nervous before preaching a sermon on the Holy Spirit. Except some of my Pentecostal brothers. God bless them. But those of us that are not quite so Pentecostal, we get a little bit, we get a little bit edge to preach about the Holy Spirit. And I think we'll see why. What Paul tells this congregation in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19, is to stop quenching the Holy Spirit. So let's look at that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You might be there already. He talked in the beginning of the paragraph of what they should be like toward each other. Then he talked in the middle of the paragraph of what they should be like toward God, giving thanks, praying, rejoicing all the time. And then verse 19, speaking of how we should be relating to God, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. He's kind of using an analogy of like a fire, you know? When you quench a fire, you go camping and you built that little fire and you're all about to go to sleep and the park ranger made sure that you understand you can't just leave the fire going. Even if you think the fire is out, what if a wind comes and takes the little embers and carries it over on somebody's, I don't know, tent or sleeping bag or something like that or into the forest? And on some dry leaves. And it can cause big problems. So what should you do to that fire to make sure it's out? Pour some water in it. Probably not going to stomp on it. That would be a big mess. But you make sure it's out. You quench it. It's an intentional, proactive decision to go, I'm putting this out because I don't want this fire anymore. It's dangerous. And I don't want it to start catching everywhere. Let's, let's, let's put a stop on this. Let's contain this. Let's stop this. And you guys are doing that to the Holy Spirit, he's saying. Stop it. Stop quenching the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't quench him. Don't stifle him. Now, how did they do that? At, you know, right, this was probably being read to them. They didn't have Xerox yet. Printing press, long time before that was coming, right? So they had one handwritten letter by Paul. Someone's in front of the congregation reading it to them. And I wonder if they pause right there. Stop quenching. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. And then give a little stare. And they're thinking, well, how do we do that? We're following what you say. We, we're following the teaching of the apostles. We're being afflicted for it, but we're, we're not caving in. And we're having 
we're praying together and we're doing we're loving one another and we're giving generously to other churches that are afflicted and all these great things how are we quenching the spirit what about this good report you gave us the first whole couple chapters of this letter about how great this church is i mean obviously it's a solid church how are we quenching the holy spirit so he tells him don't quench the holy spirit and then next line he describes what he's talking about do not despise prophecies there are prophecies in your church and you're despising them you're shutting them down you're shutting them up you're closing it down you don't want to hear prophecies. You just want to have church, but you don't want to hear prophecies. And that's not good, he's telling them. All right. So don't quench the Holy Spirit. There's different ways to do that. But in this context, he's talking about stifling prophets in the church. Quieting them, not listening to them, not accepting them, not receiving what they're saying. They're despising it. They're hating it. Okay. So that leads to the obvious question, what's a prophecy? What are we talking about here? Because I don't want to quench the spirit. I need to know what it's talking about here. And the problem here is that there's different views. Surprise, surprise. Christians have different views on this verse, right? Now, it's, it's not really that much of a surprise because, you know, Paul probably taught them in person what this was about, and he's reminding them in a letter, hey, don't forget, don't despise prophecies. We're 2,000 years removed that we didn't have that teaching when Paul sat down with them, so we have to put things together with the rest of Scripture to try to get behind what in the world is Paul talking about. So we have to look at how does he use the word prophecy in his other letters? How does the Bible use the word prophecy? All right? And as we try to do that a piece it together, we get an understanding of what prophecy is. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay out three views for you real fast. I, I don't have the time to defend each one of them, pull out a big whiteboard, give you all the verses for each one. Uh, you can research this on your own. I don't think any of the three views are heretical. I don't think you're going to hell if you pick one versus the other view. But I'm going to give you what my view is. And then um, maybe half of you that agree more with one of the other two views... You don't want to follow up with me or send me an angry email or... No, you y'all don't do that. Okay. View number one. Not number one in terms of prominence or importance, but just the order that I chose. Right? View number one is that prophecy is uh, binding and authoritative because it is God's word. This is what the Old Testament prophets did. Isaiah spoke. You listen. That is God's man. Isaiah is God's man, and Isaiah comes to you with a message. You listen. Nathan approaches David. David didn't go, well, let me go get three other opinions. No, Nathan is a prophet of God, told David, rebuked David, and David listened. That's a prophet. In the New Testament, it would be apostles, not just pastors. I don't write scripture. You don't have first and second Lucas, you know, in your New Testament. You, You won't have that, and if I did, you wouldn't read it. I hope, or read it and just, you know, take it as an ironic, you know, joke or something. But it's not Scripture. You go to the Family Life Christian bookstore, and you pluck a book from your favorite Christian author, and you're like, wow, this is great. But it's not Bible. Prophets spoke with authority. Apostles spoke with authority. They wrote something down, and it was passed around the churches as Scripture. So one view is that what Paul's talking about here is prophecies like that. Prophecies that were authoritative, that were binding, 
And in that scenario, that gift does not exist in churches today because we don't keep adding to the Bible, do we? I mean, when I stand up here, I don't tell you, I have a word from the Lord. You all need to fill in the blank. And you all go, well, without question, he's a prophet. No, you don't. I'm not a prophet. So in that view, that's what it was that Paul was talking about. And quite frankly, it's irrelevant to us today, except for what prophets wrote down. In that case, don't quench what was written down by the prophets for us. Make sense? That's view number one. View number two is that, you know, prophecy is, is, of course, it's around today because prophecy, all ever prophecy was in the New Testament was like preaching. It was like teaching. You're getting up and you're, you're, you're not foretelling something that's going to happen. You're forthtelling. You're not saying uh, in 2017, the Lord is going to return. That, not, that, that's not prophecy that he's talking about. He's just talking about a prophetic word from the Lord like, I can just read a verse, explain it to you, and that's, and that's prophecy. It's very much like preaching or very much like teaching. And if it's very much like preaching or very much like teaching, then of course it's around today. We're supposed to be doing that. No problems. What they were doing was people were coming and preaching to them and sharing a word with them, and they were stifling it. They didn't want to hear it. That's how they were quenching the Spirit. View number three. Doesn't fit in as neat of a box but in my personal opinion, does better with the evidence we have in Scripture. View number three is that a prophecy is a revelation given to a believer for someone else that they couldn't have known any other way except that God gave it to them. It's spontaneous. It's a word from the Lord. It is not binding. It is not the Bible. It is not Scripture. It is not on the level of the Old Testament prophets or the New Testament apostles or Scripture. It is not on that level. So where do I get that from? Well, I get that from 1 Corinthians 14. You can write some of these down. I'm not going to turn to them because then we'll be here past lunchtime. And y'all know I love lunch. I got to eat. 1 Corinthians 14, uh, verse 30, it talks about someone has a revelation. They stand up and they speak it to someone else that's sitting there, and it's a word for them. Okay. It's not binding on the whole congregation. It could be addressed to more than one person. But it's usually someone has a word to deliver to somebody else that was spontaneously given to them by revelation of the Lord. That doesn't mean that the Lord spoke it audibly or that an angel came through a window. But a word was given to someone and they, they're prompted to give that word to somebody else. That's prophecy. So that looks like what matches best with 1 Corinthians 14. It's a spiritual gift listed in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. Have you ever seen this list of spiritual gifts, guys? 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. They're both chapter 12, Romans, 1 Corinthians. And Paul listed in there as a gift, meaning everyone doesn't have it. Everyone doesn't do it. Some got the gift of tongues. Some got the gift of helps. Some got the gift of a word of knowledge. Some got a gift of discernment. Some got a gift of prophecy. So it's not a calling. That's not something you go to seminary and get trained for. It's a spiritual gift. What is a spiritual gift? It's a supernatural endowment given by the Holy Spirit such that you couldn't do that as well as you can or as often as you can or as effectively as you can had the Holy Spirit not given you that gift. Otherwise, it's just talents. Oh, he's really good at welcoming people. Well, that's, that's a skill or a talent or a trait. But if the way that person welcomes people okay, or helps people ministers to them it's effective you go man he's like supernaturally gifted there's something going on there it's a spiritual gift and in this case 
the spiritual gift of prophecy was a word of, by revelation. The word revelation is there in 1 Corinthians 14.30. Given to someone. Not revelation, capital R, like this. But revelation, small r. God reveals himself in other ways, right? In Romans, Paul talks about how nature, even if someone doesn't have a Bible, nature reveals something about God. Okay, but we don't go to the mountain and go, look at that mountain. God's telling me A, B, and C through that mountain. You know, we're not interpreting mountains because the mountains is not the Bible. So there's levels of revelation. This is supreme. The Bible is, is it. But then God speaks in these other ways, not a whole lot of ways, but prophecy is one of them, at least in the New Testament times. And I would say there's no reason to believe that has stopped. Okay? Why? Because I don't believe that the Bible tells us that it stopped. We'll go into that a little bit more in a moment. So those who believe this third view that I'm telling you, that it's a spontaneous word from the Spirit to someone else, some say yes, it exists today. Some say yes, that's what it was, but it doesn't exist today. And those that say it doesn't exist today say, well, when the Bible was finished being written, we didn't need prophecies anymore. Now, I so badly want to go, yeah, that's convenient. I don't want any weirdo telling me the Lord told me this weird thing and then I got to go home and tell my wife we got to pray about it and think about it and talk about it. That's annoying. Show me a verse or shut up. That's, that's, my, that's my thinking. You know, if you don't have a verse to back it up, it, you know, it's your opinion. Nice opinion. Thank you. Uh, but, you know, don't come up to me like the Lord told me you have to uh, homeschool your children. You know, um, homeschooling is great. But don't do that to people. Don't, don't do your, tell them that they have to do it your way because God told you, man, show me verses. Man, show me verses. If you can just prove it to me from verses, I'm on board. Okay? So I have a part of me that wants to pick one of the other views or this view and say that's what prophecy is, but it doesn't happen anymore. Why? Because it's comfortable. But as I read the Bible, I can't get there biblically. I can't, I can't put the verses together and go, yes, it has stopped. Meaning anyone that ever comes up to me speaking in tongues or talking about let me put my hand on you because I have a gift of healing or talking about I have a word from the Lord, I'll shut them up right there because it's not biblical. I can't do that because now I'm the one that can't show them chapter and verse that definitely is, has stopped. So I think for many brothers and sisters and churches that... Uh, reject prophecy and tongues and the so-called miraculous gift, just object, reject it outright. I wonder how much of that thinking is rooted not in Scripture, but in being uncomfortable with weirdness. Why? Because I know a lot of, a lot of I'm like in the Reformed camp, guys. Like most of my friends, maybe not most, but a lot of my friends, they're just very... Let's skip that part, you know? They don't, they don't want to get there. And if you press them on it, they're like, well, how do you know? How do you know it's a word from the Lord? I'm like, okay, that's another question, isn't it? But the question we're dealing with right now is not how do we know. The question we're dealing with is, is there verses that tell us it's going to stop? If not, then we have to be open to it. Now, they weren't. They weren't open to it. We like to go back then. Everybody was speaking in tongues and jumping around and, and whatever, you know. No. 
Paul wrote the first Corinthians and told them, you guys need to get some order up in here. He didn't tell them, stop speaking tongues. He said, you guys are going crazy. So stop being crazy. People are walking in and you're doing weird stuff. You're babbling. They don't know what you're talking about. Stop it. There has to be an interpretation. People have to speak one at a time, stand in a line, do things in order because God is not a God of confusion. That would have been a perfect place for Paul to tell them, look, this is going to run out anyway. It's like gasoline that runs out and runs out in a few years. You guys aren't going to be doing this anymore anyway. He's like, no, pursue the gifts eagerly. It's great, but do it in order and stop being crazy. That's different than saying it's stopped, right? So um, I love those brothers and sisters. I love those churches. They're great. I love how they want to honor the word. And they want to protect the word, and they see prophecies as infringing upon the word. But as we'll see in a moment, that is not the case. So here's what we have to clarify. What is prophecy for? If we don't know what a prophecy is for, we don't know what to do with it, right? What is the purpose of a prophecy? Paul tells you, you can turn there if you want, but you don't have to. 1 Corinthians 14, he gives us two reasons for it. In verse 3, he tells us it's to build up the people, to encourage the people, to console the people. It's an upbuilding. It's a consoling. How many of you have heard people give prophecies and they're always damning? They're always, somebody's going to die. You know, you're, you need to repent. I saw it. God gave me a vision of how evil you are when you're actually at home, you punk. You know, no, upbuilding, encouraging, consoling is what prophecy is for. And then at the end of 1 Corinthians 14, verses 24 to 25, he tells that evangelistically, people might come into the church and they get a prophecy to them and it's going to call them to conviction. It's going to call them to account. And then he says, it discloses the secrets of the heart. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Somebody said something to you by word of prophecy or the Lord put this on my heart and they tell you something. There's no way they could have known what they said. There's no way they could have known what they said, but they said it. Because the gift of prophecy discloses the secrets of the heart, 1 Corinthians 14. So why do they despise them in this church? I think they despise them for the same reasons many of our churches despise them. We, we, we don't know what to do with it. It's easier to just do away with it than to actually have to figure out what to do with it, right? It would just be much more comfortable to just cut it off than to figure out what do we do with this? Somebody came to me and said, I feel like the Lord is telling me this. What do I do with that? I'd rather just go, they're crazy. All of them. They're all crazy. Every single last one of them are crazy. I just want to read my Bible. Right? That's comfortable. But that's not necessarily scriptural. And I think this gift, the misuse of this gift, has caused a lot of hurt, pain, and confusion. Because not only do people not know what to do with it when they receive it, people don't know how to give it. Uh, John Piper, one of my favorite uh, preachers alive today, uh, talks about a story where, and he's open to prophecies and he's open to spiritual gifts all being active today. He's not Pentecostal, but he's open to the gifts being present. And he encourages this in his church. One day, uh, during uh, his wife, Noel's fourth pregnancy, someone spoke to John Piper and told him, your wife is going to have a boy and she's going to die giving birth. So he's like, this is a person in my congregation. I've been encouraging this in my congregation and then this is what I get. This is confusing. This doesn't encourage me, upbuild me, or console me either. What is, what is the purpose of this word? 
So he doesn't tell his wife, he doesn't tell his family, he doesn't tell the others, he just keeps it to himself. Noel gives birth to their fourth boy, and she's fine. She's ministering all over the nation today. False prophecy. Then you think, why would that person, why would that, why would you say that, right? Someone very close to me had a series of miscarriages. Some Christian that they respect in their family told them once she was pregnant again, I forget, a third time or something, this is it, and it's going to be a boy. Oh, my goodness, they took that to heart. They were already thanking the Lord. They just were so encouraged by that. Another miscarriage. Why do people despise prophecy? If you experienced that, wouldn't you be tempted to despise prophecy? The next time someone came up to you, I have a word from the Lord. Shut up. Can we just read the Bible? But Paul's saying, don't despise it. he's, He's not saying there aren't false ones. He's not saying, guys, all prophecies are good. No. He says, don't despise them. Test them. Test them. And if it fails the test, by all means, tell them to shut up. Tell them to stop. Because that, that now you're not quenching the spirit. You're quenching false prophecy. You need to quench that. But if you test it and it passes the test, it looks like it's from God. Man, don't, don't quench it. Accept it. Receive it. Be consoled by it. Be edified by it. Don't stop that work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives that gift to one or two or three people in a church. And those people are trying to practice their gifts and everyone around them is stifling them. That's, that's not cool. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit. So Paul doesn't say give it up or do away with it, but instead test it. Look at how he says it. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So you test it. And at the end of testing it, it's going to be one of two things. It's going to be good. It's going to be of the Lord. Hold fast to it. Don't quench that. Hold fast to that. Let that encourage you. Always remember that word of encouragement. That was for you. But if it doesn't pass the test, you better run. Abstain from that. Abstain from every form of evil. The word form is, sort of, is a word that's used for outward appearance. So I'm encouraged to think, Sometimes you don't even have to dig real deep to see that this is, this is an appearance of evil. It doesn't fit with what prophecy is supposed to be. So we test it. That leads us logically to the next question. How do you test it? Paul leaves it out, doesn't he? Like, ah! Right? And? And it's again, now I'm going to close my letter. What? Paul? You know? Other people are going to read this. He doesn't tell us. But thankfully, our Bible isn't First Thessalonians. Our Bible is 66 books of God-inspired, God-breathed words that we put together for the big picture. Now, to save us some time, I'm going to just give us a brief survey of what testing looks like in Scripture. I say brief because there's more. There's more. We could be up here for a really long time. This is going to be brief. Okay? Here's a couple places you might want to jot down and take a look at later. And then I'm going to summarize it for you. But here's a few places. Deuteronomy 18. They would test the Old Testament prophets. People in the Old Testament. I'm a prophet. All right, let's see what you got. They would test them. Okay? What they say has to come to pass. If it doesn't come to pass, they're a false prophet. That's pretty easy, right? Okay? If somebody says, here's what's going to happen. 
and then it doesn't happen, you're a false prophet. And you would think that would be easy to figure out, but why do people like Harold Camping keep putting out dates that Christ is going to return? The date comes, the date passes, and he's still popular. How does he still have radio programs? He's still publishing books. He named the date. Jesus didn't come. He's a false prophet. But people love dates, and they love information, and they love seeing symbols and the stars and alignments. They love reading the newspaper and going, oh, if Russia makes this move, then that must be, oh, this is Revelation 3. No, that's not Revelation. Stop. But people love that stuff. But if what someone says doesn't come to pass, they're a false prophet. Deuteronomy 18, it's always been that way. Deuteronomy 13, if what a prophet does say say does come to pass, it says in Deuteronomy 13, they said something's going to happen, and it does happen. Automatically a prophet? No. What if they're a false prophet, and Satan and his demons made that thing happen to make it look like he's a real prophet? But what's Satan's agenda? To pull you toward the Lord or to push you away from the Lord? To push you away from the Lord. So Deuteronomy 18 says what they say come true. That's not enough, though. Back in Deuteronomy 13, down the law, that not only does what they say have to actually happen, but the ministry has to lead you to God. If it leads you to any other God, false prophet. So doctrinal orthodoxy, okay, a right doctrine, a good teaching, 1 John 4, do they confess Christ? Oh, God tells me this and God tells me that. Someone came to our church once and he's like, oh, yeah, I have the gift of healing. I lay my hands and they feel a burning sensation and they get healed and it looks like you have some people limping around and stuff. I could do a ministry. I could do whatever. I'm like, huh. Come to growth group. We'll pray. We'll get together. Oh, yeah. I don't really do that. Why not? If somebody loves Jesus, that's one thing. But if they just love burning sensations when they touch people, I'm not saying that's not a burning sensation, Deuteronomy 18. I'm just saying you may not be of the Lord, Deuteronomy 13. 1 John 4 makes that clear. Do they confess Christ? Because they're not going to really, truly confess Christ if it's an evil spirit that's doing the stuff that they're saying is happening. Galatians 1, 8 and 9. Other God. Paul tells the Galatians, if even if an angel comes through the window and gives you a different gospel, forget what Paul is saying, do this instead. They're accursed. <laughs> Paul's cussing the angels out. You know, he's like, forget the angels, man. It's the word of God, right? No other gospel. It can't contradict the good news of Jesus Christ. Place Titus 1. Talk about, you know, he's telling Titus, teachers and false prophets contradict the sound teaching that's been handed down to you. And how's it been handed down to us? Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproving, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God is equipped to do every good work. In other words, you don't need anything outside of Scripture as your ultimate authority for how to grow in Christ. So if someone's word of knowledge or prophecy doesn't match Scripture, which one goes? Not Scripture. So we need to know our Bibles. And what saddened me about, say, the Pentecostal church, for many years I was in one, and in many ways I love them, and they've done a lot for me. But a lot of times, churches where there's a lot of spiritual gifts happening, Bible knowledge is low. 
Well, then how do you discern what's going on? Don't, don't talk to me about the importance of these gifts if the word of God's not important to you first, because then you can't test them. So we need to have a high view of Scripture first. That is how we test. So here's a summary. Four ways you test. Right? Four ways you test a prophecy when someone tells you, this is a word from the Lord, I, I feel prompted to tell you this. Is it true to Scripture? Is it true to experience? This is going to happen. It doesn't happen. False prophet, right? Is it, is it true in real life? Is the person a believer? Not just the person says they're a believer or a person comes to church. Are they really a believer? Do they really confess Christ? Number four, does it match the purpose of what prophecy is? Does it upbuild, encourage, or console? 1 Corinthians 14. Does it evangelize a lost person? 1 Corinthians 14 again. Because if it's not doing that and it's doing something else, it's tearing down, it's separating, it's dividing. Someone comes up to you and says, I, I got a word from the Lord that half of our church should split and leave. That, that's probably, that doesn't match 1 Corinthians 14, right? It's encouraging, it's upbuilding, it's consoling, and it's evangelistic. So I think those are four tests that Scripture gives us to weigh what is said. And when you read 1 Corinthians 14, verse 29, he says, let two or three of you prophesy. In other words, don't, don't have 30 of you prophesy and take over the whole service, guys. We're not going to do that. Two or three of you will prophesy. You'll do it one at a time, and everyone else that's around will weigh what is said. I find it interesting how many times I hear about so-called prophecy, and it's always pulling someone into a dark corner of a church. Hey, the Lord told me this privately to you. Huh, not in First Corinthians 14. There's people around. Well, I don't want people to judge me. Yes, you do. They're supposed to weigh what you just said. And if it scares you, well, I'm not sure if it's a word from the Lord. Well, then don't say it then. Don't say it's a word from the Lord if you don't know for sure. It's burning inside your heart. It's clear in your mind. It's clear as day. You're not settled doing anything else but getting this out. God's not leaving you alone about it. Okay, then say it. But say it in front of other people so they can weigh it. That's the biblical way. So we're supposed to test it. We're supposed to weigh it. It doesn't take a special pastor with special knowledge to weigh it because in 1 Corinthians 14, the others that are sitting around are the ones weighing it. It should sound right. It, should, it shouldn't make you go, God said that? Yeah, probably not. It shouldn't go, oh, I thought, I thought it was, the Trinity was three in one. Oh, now it's four in one. No, it's not four in one. That person needs to be rebuked and taught. Right? So we don't despise prophecy. In my understanding, so far in this church, I've been here nine years. I've not heard one. That's okay. I don't see a place in Scripture that says, if you're going to be a church, you have to have prophecies. If no one's speaking in tongues, then you guys are a false church. No. No. You read the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, the first chapters of Revelation. He tells me, here's what I don't like about this church. Here's what I do like about this church. And he goes on to the next one. Here's what I do like. Here's what I don't like. It's always about doctrine. He doesn't talk about how many people they are. He doesn't talk about if they're going to a third service. He doesn't talk about how long the worship set is. He doesn't talk about spiritual gifts. And it's not that spiritual gifts aren't important. It's that it's not necessary for a church. So we test it. We weigh it. We use Scripture to do that. 
We make sure that it's within the purpose of what Scripture is supposed to be for. And in that way, we don't despise it. The last thing I want to point out in this verse is really important. What is the ultimate purpose of prophecy? Why shouldn't we despise it? Because it leads us to Christ. If you drop down, we're going to be in these verses next week, so I'm not going to take a long time in it. But verse 23, May the God of peace sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's whole point in this letter is to get them ready for the return of Christ. And prophecies is one way that we're prepared for the return of Christ, so don't despise it. That's the logic. Then he says in verse 28, signs off, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. In order to be ready for Christ's return, Christ is the one that has to prepare you. And one of the ways he's going to prepare you could be prophecy in the church, so don't despise them when they come. He'll give it if it's needed. So don't despise it if it comes. This helps us in conforming to Christ. Now the Holy Spirit, he can do whatever he wants, guys. If next week we come in here and after worship... Uh, after a service, two or three of you get prompted by the Spirit to say something to someone else. Be careful, be prayerful, be wise, and do it in front of others that can weigh it, and go for it. He can do that if he wants. This is, this is not my church. I just, you know, the elders and I don't sit together like, what are we going to do with our church today? You know, No, we're going, Lord, where are you, where are you going? Where, where, how, how are you leading us? Right, we want to follow. We want to follow your prompting. So the Holy Spirit can do it or not do it. If a church doesn't have the gifts of the Holy Spirit and and those particular gifts, who's to say which gifts the Holy Spirit is supposed to give? We might think, I mean, we're a smaller church. We can think of several gifts probably that we don't have right now. Doesn't make us not a church. Doesn't Doesn't mean that we have to go necessarily join with another church that has those gifts, otherwise we're some kind of incomplete church. No, the Holy Spirit could do what He wants. He can do it different from church to church. He can do it different from place to place. And He could do it differently from generation to generation. We don't read the book of Acts and go, yeah, our church should be just like this. Really? Because next time you tell somebody else that you tithe 10%, but you actually put 8% in the plate, you might drop dead. Ananias and Sapphira. Do we really want an Acts church where people are dropping dead at the door? But we see that, right? Look what they did. They did this, and they were thousands of people came. They met in homes. There's a secret. If we meet in homes, now thousands of people will come. There's churches dying all over the country meeting in homes. What happened? You're misreading the book of Acts is what happened. The book of Acts is not there to replicate everything that's there. The book of Acts is there to go, whoa, here is 12 dudes that exploded into a church. And it's not the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Holy Spirit doing it. It's all on him. He did it. It's miraculous. And when they questioned whether this was real, they go, man, you remember back in Isaiah, it talked about the lame man leaping? Well, here's a lame man. I touched him. Now he's leaping. Are you going to listen now? We don't really have that background. If a lame man starts leaping now, we're not thinking Isaiah. We're thinking weirdo. Okay? So we're so far removed from that context, we don't expect the book of Acts to come alive in the church now the way it is. Another observation is that typically, I can't prove this. I can't footnote it. I can't send you to a source. This is what I've seen, my experience, and you think about whether you think it matches your experience. 
regions that are most engaged in prophecy, tongues, healings, and things like that, the higher that is, the lower biblical literacy is. Test it. Where, where, where do you need to go to see people healed and speaking in tongues? Where do you need to go to see that? Mostly churches that have low Bible education. Now, I used to really, that used to bother me. Does that mean the more we learn of the Bible, the less spiritual we are? No. It means the more we learn to appreciate God's Word, the less we need the ecstatic stuff. My mom gave me a word of consolation once, and I don't think it was a prophecy, it was just her, her opinion. A friend of mine was always trying to get me to speak tongues, speak in tongues. Oh! And I'm like, dude, I've gone down to the Pentecostal altar calls, I've gone down to the front, never happens. Other people next to me that I'm like, I didn't even know they were spiritual, you know. And they're like, oh, I saw a vision of a cross floating and it turned around. I'm like, I'm going to go to McDonald's, you know. It was discouraging to me that I didn't get it. How come I'm not getting visions? How come I'm not speaking in tongues? And my friend told me, hey, you need to go see my aunt. She prayed over me and I got it. I got it like that. I got tongues like that. She prayed over me. And then that bothered me. I got to go to a specific person? What happened to like the priesthood of all believers? You know, I just, and then I'm like, do I, am I thinking too much? Am I overthinking this? And I'm like, I think I'm supposed to think. I I think I'm supposed to think. So it really bothered me. And I remember my mother one day, she told me, and my mother, she's Pentecostal, right? She told me, maybe the Lord gives it to people who need it more and doesn't give it to people who don't need it as much. I thought, man, then I started thinking about my friend. Doesn't read his Bible much doesn't really understand doctrine, but has a genuine desire to serve the Lord. And there's something about this speaking in tongues that's really doing something for him. Okay, and then I thought, what would it really do for me? Would it make me do my devotionals more? I was leading a Bible study at a young adults group at church. Would it help me lead the Bible study more? Better? You know, not more better. More, period, better, question mark? Never mind. (laughs) Grammar Nazi. Not more, better. No, I didn't think, I didn't think so. Then I thought, you know what, God, if you want to give me one of those gifts, give it to me. If not, I'm going to just read your word and teach your word. I'm just, just going to do that. But it's easy to despise prophecy because of the confusion. But sometimes prophecy works. I'll leave you with this. Probably most of you don't know this. I don't think you do. When I was in high school, I was in a Christian high school, and the teacher would lead devotions in the class, start class with devotions, and... Um, I didn't hate the devotion, but I just hated the school. I'm like, I should just be a better school. Like, why are we in here? I just felt it was weird, you know? But it was a Christian school, and mom just really wanted me in a Christian school. Okay. And that teacher would sometimes ask me to lead the class in devotions. I'm like, why? She's like, because I think you'd be good at it. I'm like, they don't care. You're not in the hallways talking with these kids like I am. They could care less what the Bible says. And they're definitely not going to care if it comes from me. And she's, don't, she's like, don't do it because they're going to hear it. Do it because you're supposed to do it. What do you mean? You're called to ministry. Well, how do you know that? I know. Chapter and verse, lady. I don't want to hear it. My mom started going to a different church. She wanted the Spanish-speaking, tambourine-jiggling uh, stage, you know, bouncing, 
worship man from Puerto Rico, straight from Puerto Rico, man, imported with the Bustelo coffee in the back. That's what they wanted. And I'm like, okay, I, I kind of went to an American Pentecostal church where things were, you know, you may speak now. Blah, 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 blah. Too much. Interpretation. Quiet. Sing again. You know? It was like Pentecostal, like white style, you know? And I was cool with that. But my mom's church, I would go there once in a while and just kind of get in touch with my roots and my background. And, you know, the music was great and everything like that. And I understood most of the sermon. I knew enough Spanish to tell when he was breaking the tongues and was back to Spanish. That's about, that's about <laughs> as much Spanish as I was comfortable. No, I knew a little more than that. But that pastor would come over to evangelize my stepdad. And I remember he would, uh, he would tell me that. You're called to ministry. How do you know, I would ask. The Lord told me. Okay. All right. I wasn't thinking ministry at all, guys. I don't want to make, I wanted to make money, you know, not be rich and like be a pompous jerk. Just I want to provide for my family and not, you know, worry about I was, that's the track I was thinking. He would say it over and over again. My mom would tell me, oh, I was praying with this woman. She has the gift of prophecy. And she told me, your son is called to ministry. He's going to minister to these many people and blah, blah, blah. All right. I graduate high school. I go to Rutgers. And I'm terrible at school. I'm getting bad grades. I'm pretty good in English. I'm like, what do you do with an English degree? I read books. You know, like, what, what do you do with an English degree? I, I don't know what to do. I, was, I felt kind of lost. Three semesters in, I didn't know what to do. I remember asking my pastor, how do you know if you're called to ministry? He said, I knew I was called when I was not comfortable being anywhere else, doing anywhere, anything else. I thought that was interesting because I was feeling really, ministry didn't sound comforting to me, but the the thing I was in just really, I was just kind of lost. Here's how the story ends. I go to my mom's church on a special night. An evangelist comes from Puerto Rico, flew in that day, doesn't know my family, doesn't know me, never met him. And he preaches a sermon, then he has an altar call, you know, the the old Billy Sunday style. Come on up to the front. Come on up to the front. We're going to pray for you. And I was just really struggling with this. I'm like, God. I'm so sick of so-and-so telling me I'm called to ministry, that person telling me I'm called to ministry, the other person telling me I'm called, my mom telling me I'm called to ministry. I need to know I'm called because I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go on someone else's whim, on someone else's dream or vision or whatever this is. I need to know. And so I came up to the front for prayer, and that evangelist prays over me in tongues, and I'm like, You know, I'm thinking I'm going to just go home and have a snack. I don't understand what he's saying, you know. But then he interpreted it in Spanish, but I was able to hang. And he, like, answers all the questions. You are called to ministry. Stop resisting it. Stop doubting it. You're going to preach for me. Blah, 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 blah. I start breaking down crying. And I thought, now if I resist, I'm just an idiot, you know? <laughs> like the guy hanging off the cliff, please, God, send help. And they're like, let go. And he's like, send someone else, you know? That dude ends up dying at the end of that joke, right? I didn't want to keep hanging on the cliff. I said, that's it. I put in my transfer papers at Rutgers University. I remember handing in the paper, and the transfer says Rutgers University to Moody Bible Institute. She gave me a weird look. She's like, okay, 
and stamped it. I was like, it's a good school, you know. I never looked back. Uh, I was on a inter- radio interview with Mark Elfstrand a few weeks ago. And they asked, this is actually a couple months ago, it was the one prior. They went around and asked the pastor, have you ever doubted ministry? Have you ever doubted your ministry? And I said, no. Not once have I ever woke up or gone to bed thinking, I wonder if I missed it somehow. I, I must have missed it. Somehow. This must not be for me. Have I ever had difficult times? Yes. Have I ever wanted to crawl into a hole and not come out for a long time? Yep. Anxiety? Sure. But never questioned it. That was a word for me. Now, there's words that are bad, things that don't come true, things that aren't right. You test it. You sift it. I went home, and I thought, okay, what are my spiritual gifts? What do I love to do at church? I love to teach. I love to teach the Word. What do I like to do in my spare time? I like to open up concordances and study God's Word. That's probably pretty weird for a 17-year-old, but that's what I love to do. Maybe I am called a ministry, right? Now that God, like, now God is pressing it in, it matched. It matched real life. It matched what the Bible says about spiritual gifts. It matched what I understood about calling. It matched the testimony of people around me. And you know what, guys? Not only does the Bible leave room for prophecy, but there's so many testimonies from worthy, responsible Christians that you can't ignore. You can't just ignore it and go, no, 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 there's no prophecies today. If you hear of eight bad ones, and you only have heard of two good ones, that's a pretty low percentage, right? It's 20%. But Paul doesn't guarantee a percentage. He doesn't say, all right, when bad prophecies reach the tipping point of 80%, then stop it. No, just test everything. Test all of them. And the ones that are good, hold to them. The ones that are bad, don't. And we do that with the Bible. So as a church, we want to be open to God's gifts, but we're open with a firm filter. That's God's word. Amen? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and we're going to, uh, we're going to close in a song together. So I'm going to ask you to rise, if you're able, and we'll sing a closing song together.